0: cool all right so since we have limited time let's just jump into it welcome to the Rodeo Adventure Labs podcast. I am your host, Nick. I'm joined today by a cast of characters. I've got my co-host, Stephen Fitzgerald. Um, We've also brought in Logan or Logan brought himself in. He happened to be at the Rodeo HQ and he is a journalism student. It was only fitting to bring him uh, into the podcast to talk to Ben Delaney today. Ben um, is a uh, has spent over 20 years um, in the cycling media industry. And so we felt like we just really wanted to um, get an understanding of how media works. Um, Logan might chime in with some hard-hitting questions, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, we just really wanted to talk to you, Ben, today and um, understand how, how it all works. So welcome to the podcast. Um, we'll we'll try and be on target and and really happy everyone could be here today.
1: Well, hello everyone, and th- thanks very much for having me. I'm honored to be here. I don't know if I can shed light on things or just to add some complexity and muddling, but uh, certainly happy to chat about it. Big fan of Rodeo Labs. We want to talk about your
2: new venture, uh, which just hit us with the name right up front, so we can people know where to find you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The Ride with Ben Delaney is my new gravel and road cycling channel on YouTube, so you can check that out. The Ride with Ben Delaney. Cool. You've
2: you've already been super busy. You're like prolific
0: at this. You've already released tons of videos and I feel like you only started a month ago. So you definitely hit the ground running.
2: Trying to keep
1: keep the momentum
2: going, yeah. I mean, from my from my background, long pre-rodeo, uh, I just remember Ben seeing you as a fixture of front range cycling, always at the pointy end of everything. Uh and before I knew anything about you or who you were, I just noticed that you were always sort of going very fast and doing your share of winning and, uh, butt kicking. And, uh, that just made a passive impression on, Oh, there's that guy. There's that guy again. Uh, and then once upon a time, maybe down in, gosh, what, what is that Salida? Uh, I may have finally met you in person for the first time at, uh, what was then the road race championship for Colorado. Uh, and I, I don't know, I think you might've mentioned the prototype donkey that I was riding or, or seen it and noticed it. And we, we exchanged a few words, and then it's just been coming and going, and then finally seeing your name, you know, on the glowing screen, I put some connections together that you were in cycling media. Uh, and then also in a way though, kind of not ships, but bikes passing in the night, because I don't think we've ever actually fully connected, uh, even though there have been some, some attempts that didn't sort of pan out, mostly me being flaky, not showing up to things. Um, but yeah, so, and then, you know, in recent years, all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're wearing an outside Jersey. You're at all of the events. You're highly visible. Uh, and then more recently seeing you starting a YouTube channel. So we just wanted to hear, uh, from someone who's, uh, been around cycling media, uh, and just understands it and operates in it and maybe learn a little bit about sort of you and then what, what it's like to work in that industry. I think a lot of people are interested in it. We all consume it, uh, but we don't know, I guess much
1: about what it's like to actually live and breathe that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds great. Sounds great. Yeah, so I got my start uh, in journalism going to the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Uh, Got a degree in print journalism, you know, like typing on a keyboard. I thought that was a thing. And and at the time, there was, you know, media was very distinct buckets. You know, photographers took pictures, print reporters did, did words. Printed words, uh, videographers were still a, a new breed. Um, and now it's all kind of mashed in together. But my idea was yeah, I wanted to work in newspapers, and I loved riding and racing bikes. Uh, that's that led me to uh, an internship at Bicycle Retailer and Industry News, which is a trade publication that goes to all the bike shops and brands like Breck Rodeo. Uh, That led to a number of years at at VeloNews. Took a little detour to specialize in their global marketing. Um, Had a hard time staying on message with the the single brand there. A lot of great folks at Specialized enjoyed that. Uh, Was at Bike Radar for a while. Um, Got to play a lot on YouTube there, working with their videographer team. So that was a lot of fun. Um, Got laid off from Bike Radar when they shut their U.S. operations. That for me was layoff number one, which is a Certainly a uh, uh, occupational hazard of being in media. <laughs> I was just talking to my buddy, Josh Patterson, with whom I worked at Bike Radar. And I was saying, oh, yeah, I got laid off again. That's left number two. And he just laughed at me. He's like, dude, try six. I've been laid off six times. And two of those were by the same Kansas newspaper. So, yeah, that's that's part of the uh, the fun musical chairs game list. But uh,
2: Is this one of those careers you just have to love more than is reasonable in order to be able to – Uh, persist through you know the turbulence
1: or is it is it is it fine probably so probably so it's both it's it's both um you know you know media in general is the business model is tenuous and never changing like everything else right and cycling is the same so when you get that venn diagram overlap and you're in the hotspot. So I mean, ironically, the the audiences for cycling media are larger than ever, right? So it's not like there's a lack of interest, at least for bike nerds like us, there's not a lack of interest in cycling media. It's just we as we the people are trying to figure out, okay, how the heck do we actually make this thing work? And part of the um, the ongoing struggle is the transition from media on dead trees to digital media. Because when it was a tangible thing, the expectation was people would pay cash money. Like you wouldn't just walk into a bookstore. Remember those, and just like take a magazine or a book and walk out. Like you would expect you to hand over money for that. When we switched over to everything being online, the expectation was if it's online, it's free, and if you pay for it, you're a dummy. Um, and that that's slowly changing, but I think that's that's like the fundamental issue that's made uh, the business of media. A little challenging. It's like, okay, how do we, the audience is there, but but how does the, the business side work? I'm not on the business side. I'm on the content side. So, <laughs> so I'm just along,
2: along for the ride. But, but all right, I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but are you now on the business and content side with you starting your own channel? Is that, uh, are you going to wear all the hats?
1: Yeah, yeah, yes and no. I mean, one thing that was appealing for me about going with the YouTube channel is that I could focus on doing content and YouTube sells ads. They take a big chunk. And then if and when, knock on wood, I get to a point where the audience is large enough, then I get some of that advertising revenue and I don't have to be hustling the ad sales part. Um, obviously, there's a lot of different other ways to monetize on YouTube by doing you know, affiliate deals, which I'm not super comfortable with, or having sponsorship, which I think could be cool if it's a like a non-competing type of thing. I mean, the, the the goal has always been a non-endemic sponsor like a Toyota or a Subaru or something where that's always in the background and then we can just talk about bikes, right? Um, it gets a little murky when you're doing something like, at least for me as, you know, I still consider myself as a journalist, like looking at something like the way athletes are monetizing, like they are branded up by whoever's sponsoring them and like that's part of the deal. You're you're there as an audience because they do incredible things with their bodies and then they are now selling whatever brand is sponsoring them, right? And like, that's not my angle. I'm coming at it from a, let's just talk honestly and openly and hopefully correctly, not always, but but at least honestly about, you know, product I'm reviewing. So like having a, a brand sponsor that's, that just doesn't really make sense to me. So um,
3: on that note, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Or just, so on the note of kind of balancing, yeah. we have this joke and it's really reductive and it's probably not even true at all. But don't at the say journalism it. I don't know department, what it is. Don't say it. It's not bad. I'm it's kidding. Just, so, we always say that, that uh, marketing majors are journalists who've sold out, kind of like our inner, inner school rivalry at the University of Richmond. The journalism department, we're small, but we're mighty. And the marketing department, like the, the major, is huge. Um, and it's part of the business school. And there's like, they get all the supplies and stuff. And we just are in a little corner upstairs in a very old building. But we kind of take that as a point of pride. Um, you've sort of lived both of this in cycling, in my eyes, as someone who's lived cycling, who also consumes a lot of the cycling media really seems to straddle that line and blur that line. Um, how do you think the two entities, journalism and marketing differ or are more similar?
1: Sure. Well, the, the similarities is they're both storytelling, right? You, in order for both of them to be compelling, like, they're, they're, you need to have a good sense of, like, what's interesting and how to bring people along for the, the ride with your narrative, right? Um, at least that's how I see it. I mean, I guess marketing could also just be throwing, say, you know, for sale signs up all the time, get your discount now or whatever. But I think the, the marketing that I find to be interesting, like what rodeo does is you're telling genuine stories and getting people excited to, con- you know, inspired and, and connected with, uh, concepts and places and each other. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it's anchored in from a brand's point of view, right? Um, whereas what I like about journalism is that you're free for the most part parts that just kind of pursue the story wherever you feel it should go or whether, wherever your editors or your team feel it should go. Um, so yeah, I don't think they're too terribly dissimilar, but marketing's objective is to sell stuff. Right. And, uh, with journalism, the, the, I guess, in, I mean, you could argue you're still selling something you're selling the story <laughs> there. Right. Um uh, you sound that entertaining. Yeah.
2: yeah. So it's it seems like um, it's interesting because you've seen this whole change across the the spectrum, going from print all the way to let's just say YouTube. Even though really everything still sort of exists, but there's there's this it's a much wider spectrum, spectrum, and everything's changed. I remember I used to buy print magazines and really enjoy sitting in a chair reading them and reading, uh, you know sort of long form or, you know, medium sized stories about grand expeditions in the Himalaya, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, it it seems like one by one, the print side has been shutting itself down and the online space has been sort of on the up and up, you know, you know, websites, blogs, et cetera, banner ads. Um, and the, the, the length of the content has gotten shorter and shorter. And then now we see, uh, in recent years, the YouTube format is getting incredibly popular, uh, people talking to the camera, making really high quality production value videos, uh, and, and just floating them out there. And it seems like that the way, uh, that the industry is in, I don't know, from my perspective, uh, a trying to figure itself out mode. And I think we've seen this, you know, I've just been watching the consolidation uh, in the online media space, yeah, I remember I was at Sea Otter in eighteen or nineteen, and I think Pink Bike uh, had had either just been bought or just bought um, someone else. I think maybe it was Cycling Tips. Cycling Tips, yes. And you you saw these large successful websites, a lot of whom had started as sort of small one man things. I think Cycling Tips was just a guy. Yep, Wade Wallace. Yep. Yeah, and then there was also. Um, uh, I, I don't know, really know the complete origin story of pink bike, but I think it started small and passionate, got bigger and bigger and bigger than it, then it gets acquired. And now we, we've seen it with even the Radivist uh, being, I don't know if they call it acquired, but I think it's something close to being acquired by the pros closet. Um, and so you see things start small, get bigger, uh, on passion and great content, uh, and then get bought and, and then change their model, you know, cycling tips is getting a paywall for some things, Vela news, which is sort of also really coming back strong. There are quality of their contents going up with being acquired, but they're also putting a paywall in. And, and, and as I stand back and watch it all, I just think it seems like everybody's still trying to figure out, or maybe we always have been, but everybody's trying to figure out what to do online and how to make it work. And it made me ask the question you know, is this, is this like a really lucrative industry that's working really well, or is it a mess where people are sort of under-resourced and barely scraping by? Um, Occasionally I would get, see some really, really amazing investigative long pieces on cycling tips that one was so good. It made me sort of up and subscribe, but I thought I can't get a sense of what's going on, uh, in the space or what to expect, or is there any stability? But can you tell us a little bit about like what you've seen? Cause you've ridden that wave or that bronco, uh, bucking bronco. Um, what's it yeah. been like, uh, as people try and invent and innovate and adapt and stay alive?
1: Yeah. And I've been bucked off a couple of times. Like when you're riding an actual bronco, eight seconds, if you can stand for eight seconds, that's a good measure of success. So I've stayed on longer than eight seconds a few times, but I've gotten tossed off. No, it goes back to what I was saying about a ta- a, what people conceive as a tangible product with which cash is associated versus an intangible digital thing. So you know you're talking about buying a print magazine. With print, there's there were and still kind of sort of in some places are two forms of revenue. There's the subscribers and or people buying at the newsstand, that's one source. And then there's advertising is another source. And, you know, before brands could just do direct marketing through the internet for the cycling space, at least you had a bit of a monopoly on that, that, uh, that audience as a media brand. Right. So like for Velenos, for instance, you know, we, we used to sell, or I'm still saying we, like I'm still there. Velenos used to sell a ton of race win ads uh, as brands would want to celebrate their sponsored riders wins over the weekend. It was like win on a Sunday, sell on a Monday was the formula for both selling bikes and selling ads in the magazine. Because if you wanted to talk to cycling fans, like th- you had to go to the media because that's where the audience was. So that would then when it pivoted to digital, no one was paying for a website, you know, because media brands were sp- starting websites as a, a kind of a, an extension and they often didn't even take it too seriously. Like, oh, that's a website, something we need to have, like a Yellow Pages listing. Um, so there was no set uh, subscription model to begin with there. So you just completely lost that stream of revenue. And at the same time, you no longer had a monopoly on the audience. So if, you know, a Trek or a Specialized or a Shram or a Shimano wanted to, market directly to consumers they could do that through these little companies called Facebook and Google for a fraction of the price that cycling media could offer that and with a much more sophisticated uh, interface so you know a lot of brands were kind of have been sort of song between yeah we want to we really want emotionally to support cycling media because it's cool and it has value but when just looked at from the cold hard lens of business analytics it's like why would i pay 10 times the rate to reach this audience that i can get from facebook and google where where they give me these real-time analytics dashboards and all this and i know i'm reaching exactly the same customers but just in a much cheaper more sophisticated way and and so cycling media was put in the position of being like yeah but branding bro like it's cool like you gotta associate with this cool thing and that's, that's a harder sell. That's it. Uh, just a
2: pause because I want I you to keep telling us how that was changing. That's so interesting because I don't think I connected those dots that, um, advertising has always been a thing and will probably, it will always be a thing, but it got taken away from cycle, online cycling publications or print magazines. And really someone sort of did an end run to the Facebook, the Googles of the world. And it just, you go straight to them now and you advertise to them and you leave your cycling websites sort of out in the cold, losing a revenue stream. And we all hear how, you know, massively profitable, you know, Google is, I don't know about Facebook, but I think They're doing it's pretty, okay. pretty damn profitable too. Uh, yeah. Like where's that money come from? It's, it's almost all advertising, maybe not all. And where did it come? Where did it go away from? Well, it used to be print advertising or it used to be, you know, online websites like a cycling website or, or really any niche sport website. Uh, that's interesting that someone basically came into the river and diverted the flow of the river into their reservoir of cash and, and all of these little sort of media outlets and tributaries just dry up and they can't generate revenue anymore. Um, okay. So, I mean, for me, that fills in a pretty big blank because I think I was wondering why doesn't it, work why doesn't it make sense I see banner ads on every cycling website
1: yes and sometimes those are sold directly like the, that that website is selling those ads directly to the brands but often it's a third party affiliate deal uh, where those ads are showing up on the cycling website so you're seeing them but it's Google that is selling those ads and firing them out to the, the cycling site so they're just getting a fraction of that revenue um Yeah. Another bit. So like when I was one, one hat I wore for a while at VeloNews and then at outside, which was the umbrella brand was membership director for cycling. And part of that job was like, figure out how the heck do we convince people to pay for content? (laughs) And, and And it was sort of analogous to, to local bike shops where on one hand you, you feel emotionally that, the sales pitch of like, hey, you should support your local shop, should be enough, but it's not. People are interested in like getting good service and a good deal, and just because you happen to be there, isn't enough of a compelling argument. Um, you know, you mentioned cycling tips adding a a paywall. Um, I remember speaking with Wade Wallace at Eurobike, shoot, like eight or ten years ago. Um, I was working for Bike Raider at the time, and he he was the wasn't, you know, obviously remains the founder of cycling tips. And we were talking about if one brand put up a, a paywall or a subscription model, we used suspect that, you know, 99.9% of the readers would just pick like, okay, next, just go into any of the other different choices out there. And it would take some concerted effort from all the websites. If, if everybody put up a paywall, it would be kind of resetting back to um, you know, like the magazine model, where as a reader you walk into the shop and you see the different titles there, and you peruse which one you want, and then you you'll pick one or maybe two, and then you'll put your money down. You know, but if it's um, that's that's taken a while to get there, uh, and there's you know the metered model where like hey, like you know Cy- Cycling News is doing that now. You read a certain number of stories, then Bing, you get prompted to pay. Um, others have a more manual model where. Editors will set what they believe to be is like the the high quality content and and set that as for subscribers only, but it's still just it's the fundamental struggle is against the perception that I don't want to pay for online stuff <laughs> and it's not with with so much of the cycling market it's not really in at least in my mind it's not a matter of the price per se because you know we know a lot of these. We know our market, right? A lot of these folks are drive nice cars and have $10,000 bicycles on the roof and carbon fiber wheels, but it's just more of the concept of like, ah, only a sucker would pay 10 bucks a year <laughs> whatever. or whatever. And then also maybe it's like a subscription fatigue that people are like, well, yeah, it's not that much money, but I've got like, I've got so many of these little things here, five bucks for Peacock and I've got my Netflix and I've got my GCN, like it oh, eh, just adds up and I don't want to bother with it. So,
3: I, I wonder how much it has to do with the fact that cycling content competes with other content outside of cycling. Um, For instance, as a journal, I subscribe to a lot of media outlets um, and a lot of them are very, very good. Uh, Things like the Atlantic magazine, um, the athletic, which is sort of longer form sports media. And the athletic is a great example. They never have been a print media outlet, but they've been writing long stories about sports and I've almost rivaled Sports Illustrated and ESPN when it comes to resources and subscriber bases. And it really, it's really detailed, really nice stuff. And that's $7.99 a month. And I don't think twice about paying that. And then compare that to cycling. And it's like, I have those cycling outlets that I pay attention to, but looking at it objectively, there's a difference in the product. And obviously it's hard for cycling with the resources we have with the audiences to compete with a sports news outlet that has NBA and and European soccer as their their foundational things. But it's also part of the reality of the challenge of it all is cycling content is not just competing against other cycling. It's also competing against that whole sort of mess of subscriptions that people who are going to follow cycling will also have. And I'm kind of, as a person who's trying to get into this, I'm kind of deciding, like, is cycling media even feasible if there are these other opportunities in this side thing? So my question to you, Ben, is how do you see that challenge playing out? And what are the the possibilities for cycling to have success, given that sort of competitive landscape when it comes to attention, if media is sort of, the, the deck is stacked against it?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's that's capitalism, right? <laughs> and that uh, we're we are competing not just for dollars, but for people's attention. That's like our most precious resource at this point. Um, and whether you're you know making bikes or making stories, um, I feel like people will f- find quality stuff and s- we'll seek it out. We'll find it tell their friends about it. Uh, Not everything will, will work, but um, have to believe. And, and you guys are, uh, you know, Nick and Steven are a success story of that. Yeah. You have to believe in what you're doing is, is a value. And that um, if you can find your people, uh, they'll buy in. Yeah. I think it's interesting.
2: Um, I manage our, social media well, really all of our media, I don't author all of it, but I just keep an eye on what we're saying. Um, and as it relates to, you know, our online social media, you know, we have, let's just say, I don't know, 60,000 people following us on Instagram. And I remind myself constantly to let's just say 58 or 59,000 of them. We're just another entertainment channel. Uh, they're mostly there. If I'm being super honest, just to see the next lusty bike gallery. Uh, that's most people scroll, 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 something cool enough, cool enough bike, cool enough paint job, cool enough image to make me stop. Maybe they'll slide through shiny the gallery. thing, shiny, right, object. shiny object, uh, honestly, fat tires, um, super fat tires on a drop bar bike. Oh my God. I got to stop and look at it. Fire emoji, fire emoji, move on. Um, <laughs> And, yes. and yes. I don't want to just be that as a company, but I realize, um, that a lot of people are just watching, 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 and they just want to be entertained. They have no intent, uh, to sort of patronize rodeo or buy a bike or support what we do. They're just there to basically be tickled mm-hmm. and amused, uh, briefly. Yep. Uh, but then there's a smaller, smaller subset that understands, I guess, what it is that we are as a company or our community, what we're trying to do, um, mm-hmm. And there, I I don't, we actually have all analytics turned off across all media at Rodeo. So we disabled our business account. We turned off Google Analytics and Facebook Tracker on our website. What? Um, Because just pure art, Steve? No, because I felt like uh, when I had that data, it was telling me, it was pushing me very hard uh, to create engagement uh, as a higher Mm. priority than telling a good story. So Mm. what I do now is yes, I know that first of all, our bikes are creative and they're cool and we're proud of them. So we're going to show them, but I also disperse in between the bikes, uh, people in places and stories. Uh, and I was, I think I was telling my wife almost like vitamins where if you want to see Uh, another cool bike, you're going to have to suffer through a couple of smiling faces in beautiful places um, (laughs) because I think we're stubbornly interested in just being who we are, even if the data is telling us that we could be theoretically more successful if we would just keep doing the things that drive engagement. And because engagement is so measurable now, it's really easy Mm -hmm. to just repeat and do it again but I don't think that we got where we are as a company or people being interested in us by being ultra repetitive or ultra formulaic. So my hunch is that if we did eventually swing towards the algorithm and the analytics, we would probably slowly die on the vine in a lot of ways. Might sell more bikes for a while, but we would just become very me too, very everybody else. So it's just a hunch, Uh but that's, I do have to think about us as, an entertainment company, uh, as a function of being a commercial entity, which is a function of employing eight people and trying to keep this machine running. So I think you do have to understand the beast and be jaded on some level or just entertainers. Um, but then you can try and work within that to maybe even subvert it or subvert yourself to try and put something out there that you feel is good. Um, but it, but what's, what's interesting about what you're saying, um, you know, with, you know, creating value, uh, ads is that I don't, I don't think most people understand that there will always be a transaction in, in consuming media, whether or not you pay a monthly subscription, um, or, or a yearly subscription for a magazine or, you know, Disney plus or whatever, it, there's the passive, uh, if you're not paying for it, you are the product cost of it. And I think that that's interesting. Because people are willing to be the product uh, and be sold to and be advertised to and be analyzed uh, and being tracked across media properties, uh, that kind of thing. That's actually the payment that we're willing to remit because it's sort of painless in that we don't feel it in the pocketbook and we're not really aware of it. I'm curious sort of what you see because you've seen a lot of the back end of that. You've got the, the passive behavior is the easiest one. I'll just consume and be sold to. And the active behavior, I'll buy a subscription is the really hard one to sell. Um, but is that, is that the way things are moving? Or what are you saying? Because um, you know at Velo News, you were trying to drive that, um, people to subscribe, but you had to understand that not everybody would. Um, so what's, what's the other side of that coin? If you don't subscribe and you want to see cool stuff, how is it that that you, as a viewer, are going to pay for it anyway?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating what you were saying about turning the analytics off. I want to come back to that as you know how I try to balance what I believe have been shown to be successful versus like what my gut says and what I am passionate about and what I want to do because I think it's good to have those two things going. Whether you are, you know, building bikes or telling stories or like running a restaurant, you know, like I, when I was in chief, I would give way too many restaurant analogies because I worked in a restaurant for a long time. And it's like, there's what you want to do. There's like what you think is delicious. But if people are coming in buying chicken burritos, like let's let's make more chicken burritos, guys. Like you you don't have to be too precious about, well, like, yeah, but there's this like special dessert that I've got a vision of. It's like, well, we can do that. But if people are coming to us for chicken burritos, let's make sure we've got our chicken burrito base covered. But, you know, as far as getting people to pay for product versus being passive, it it is – funny to see what links people will go to to avoid paying like i remember when i was working for Roma Massif. i'm gonna pick up my my buddy and my former boss chandler there was a story in the denver post that he wanted to read because it was about us but there was a paywall that was 99 cents and we were working at this Wayfinder Co-op in, in Denver. And he went from person to person. Hey, hey, if you got a post subscription? Hey, you've got a post subscription? He must have spent like 15 minutes, you know, trying to find somebody with a post subscription so he could save 99 cents. I was like, Chandler, what do you think your like hourly value is? Like if you, if you were paying yourself, you know, he's the boss of the company, but if you're paying yourself an hourly rate, how much would it be? Like, are you really saving time or saving money by, by doing this? But. It was the same thing with cyclists watching bike races. Like, yeah, you could subscribe to one of these services, but if you go to you know, cycling TV and VPN around and try to find these hacks and pirated feeds, like, I don't know, it's just, um, yeah, it's a strange thing. Um, it's funny. It's, it's like, we, I mean, we kind of don't really value
2: our own time. Uh, I mean, we would say that we do probably, right. But um, I am guilty of just blindly scrolling in a stupor on my phone at nothing, right? <laughs> uh, and and right. if I really think right. about that, I am just I am just pissing away this super valuable asset, trying to find something mildly entertaining, creating and contributing nothing to the world or my family or anything else. So I am very willing to just do that, um, and and I I don't assign any value to it. Uh, and an hour can go by pretty quickly, and you are right. What is an hour of your time actually worth um but i think we're so conditioned either internally there's some sort of behavior thing going on there where we don't really care what the value of our time is if we're <laughs> uh that's so wild yeah
1: if you just if you just get this steady drip of dopamine scrolling you're like oh just just lull me into this sense of like mildly entertained right. complacency yeah. yeah and it was it was funny with being at velanus there was you know, like a push pull between what I was trying to do as membership director get, you know, ideally we get everybody on board they're paying to subscribe they're seeing no ads they're just seeing our content they're in my humble perspective like valuing the content enough to pay for it and they don't have to see any ads you just come and see what you want which is just bike stuff the sales team was like well yes that's all fine and good but we're still trying to sell ads to our clients here and the, and the more successful you are selling memberships the f- and where people are not seeing any ads, the harder you're making our jobs mm. <laughs> to sell ads. Uh, so that was a you know, a, a funny push pull. And there's always that between editorial and, and sales at, at publications, but that was a particularly funny one. So if you subscribe, you wouldn't get the ads or get as many of them? Oh, see, this is like one more example of how I failed in my job. And then you're having to ask that, yeah, man, if you, if you subscribe, it's this is one of the many, again, I don't work there, but I'm, I will still sell this for my, my buddy is still there in the trenches who are, you know, if you become a member uh, to the outside empire, you don't see any ads. You just see the content and you see all the content. So that was part of it. It's like a, you get to see all the content and B it's, it's just a nicer layout as well. Like instead of, banners and blinkies and whatnot. It's full bleed photos. And I mean, that's certainly one thing I miss about, uh, working in print is, is the width of the canvas, but yeah. So, so Ben,
0: I, I feel like you've, you've broken it down for us of like how media pays its bills. It's, it's either advertising or it's memberships and, and both of them are just tracking the user um, implicitly through the entire process, you know, having something online makes that, that super easy. And I think paired with that is the analytics, which I know I saw your eyes light up when Steven said his analytics are turned off, right? Because I think every other company is trying to measure their impact, right? It's all about what kind of impact is being provided. And so I I agree. I think that's really interesting. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, like from, from your tenure, um, in, in the industry, but then also, like starting a new endeavor, like what are those like surprising or counterintuitive things about working in media that you're bringing to the ride with Ben Delaney, kind of moving forward? Like, what are some of those nuggets of insight that that you've gained along the way to help you in this new endeavor?
1: Yeah, I I, I think you got to do both. You know, back to the the chicken burrito analogy, um, I think it's vital to have a sense of what works and what doesn't and what your audience engages with and what they don't. Um, at the same time, I absolutely believe you have to have a vision and follow that. And, um, otherwise like, what are you bringing to the table? You know, if you're just doing a paint by numbers, okay, like, yeah, you can make things work. And we've all seen plenty of examples on Instagram of like what is just a formulaic thing and it's close enough to what you're interested in that you'll look at it for two seconds or something, but you're also aware like, this isn't a genuine thing. <laughs> and this is someone just trying to game the system. Um, so I think it's the, the, the art, uh, as far as running a, a very hum- humble business, um, or a bigger business or just staying sane is being able to balance between those two. You know, in the magazine days it was funny, we had such limited metrics. It was it was basically magazine sell through was what we had that was like was this good, was this bad? And you could have a hundred fifty page magazine with all sorts of different stories in there, some good, some bad, some halfway in between, some excellent art, some crummy art. But it was basically did somebody buy the magazine or not? And really what it came down to was like, did you put Lance on the cover? If so, it sold a lot. If not, maybe not so much. And so like it was such primitive analytics. And now we can tell, you know, any website can tell which story did the best, which type of category does the best, how long are readers staying on the site, what size monitor are they viewing your website on, where yeah. it's just down the rabbit hole. Um, yeah, full Big Brother creepiness. And, and it's good – It's good to know what works and it's good to serve the audience. Um, But one thing I was always pushing for at different places was um, to have the formula to, you know, to use best practices, but also to do genuine, authentic work. You know, we've seen whether it's on YouTube or Instagram or elsewhere, like best road bikes, best gravel bikes, best gravel tires, because like that's what people want to know, right? Like you want that's if you can deliver on that promise, that's useful. You know, within the cycling space, like a best road bikes, best gravel bikes, you can find some sites when you Google that, when you type in best gravel bikes, some sites will pop up where you're like, what the hell is this? T3.com, like what do they have to do with cycling? Like they've got nothing to do with cycling, but they've got that paint by numbers formula dialed and they're crushing on SEO. And for their business model, that's enough to get you to click. And even if you only scroll partway down, you're like, ah, these guys have never ridden a bike in their life, but they've got the formula dialed. I I want to have, I want to show up. I want to be found. So so I want to to have, you know, good SEO practices. I don't want to you know work my face off and then hide my work under a rock where nobody can find it. I want that to work just like you guys want your work to be seen. And when my work is found or when your work is found, we want people to be like, yeah, this is awesome. These guys or gals are like, they're all in on this. And it might not be perfect, but this is a genuine thing that they're doing the work, and they've got some creativity. And so, I think that's the that's the trick: is having a a you know being aware of the game, um, but having your own inner compass as well. Yeah, that may sound a little cheesy, but no, I, I,
0: that's I'm where I am. That makes sense, you know. There's definitely there's like a playbook you know, and, and some things can be highly reductive, right? Like your example of the magazine, is this good or bad? Like how do you distill that to just good or bad? Like there's, there's a lot more content than just, you know, that. So there's, there's a playbook, but it sounds like if you know how it works, there's also a room for healthy deviation and being authentic and just like going with your gut on something, you know, telling, telling the story that needs to be told because it should just be shared rather than like, is it going to be a formula? Same thing, Stephen, with you of like, you know, we'll put, we'll put the bike gallery up cause it will probably do well, but we're going to talk about, you know, we're going to find and source and really talk to really interesting people and share these stories. And, and that's, that's, that's the story that's going to be the authentic part of it all. It's
1: funny thinking about you know, tracking page views by authors. That's something that's done at many websites and that does. Steven, to your point, it creates this weird sense of pressure of like, oh, everybody wants to be on top, and once you realize, like, well, I could, I could just do the quote unquote easy things and win versus doing the things I want to do. I'm like, ah, so my advice was like, let's let's do both. Let's get some easy wins. Like, if a company sends a press release about Peter Sagan, this or that, and we can flip that in thirty minutes and get a bunch of page views, yeah, why not do that? And then that carve out some time to. Do the some passion work, which hopefully will resonate with people, but it might not. But
2: there's, there's always going to be a balancing of the commerce and the art of it. Of uh, the storytelling is is something that's passionate, and beautiful, and artful. And it it, it because as far as I'm aware,
1: we don't all have trust funds, um, or none of us do. No. So. Uh, no, I've been in Boulder yeah. for 17 years. I keep waiting yeah. for it to kick in. It has. I don't know what the statute of limitations yeah. is. It's, it's common law it's, trust fund. After duh. seven years, you get one. Uh, so you, you have to play
2: <laughs> a, a game with commerce in order to be able to continue to do what it is you want to be doing. I would wager that in an abstract way, you could take your skills that you're using in cycling and do them uh, to an audience that's bigger. I mean, I don't know. I, let's just say, you know, soccer, football and you could reach more people and maybe more commercially valuable if you're doing your job well but you chose to be in cycling probably because there's love there um so you you have to you Heck have to yeah. balance those 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 things uh it, it, you could be doing more financially probably for yourself i i used to do more financially for myself for rodeo happen um but we're we are here because we love it and i think that's something that you analytics don't don't really improve on uh, or or make you sharper on is rodeo started very messy very raw and unscripted but it was very um, we just love riding pikes and we love telling pictures uh, to a f- or taking pictures to a fault even just just I mean, we were just posting many photos a day, all the time, of just the most.
1: And they're so good. I mean, that was like the quintessential. We, we had to learn bike, that part. bike and Earth porn. There, <laughs> like, like I'm, I'll put my hand up as someone who like. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thanks. I, I I indulge in that
2: fully. But that created uh, a bunch of people that that were there. I think for the love and the stories and the photos and the crazy rides, uh, and then they also came along. Uh, as we, we went into the, the commerce side of it, but the, but that part, um, I think has always been tangible enough to people that it matters to, that it, that it made us interesting to come back to. And we get enough feedback on that and we see enough conversation in the comments. You know, we have two way, three way conversation down in the comments. We, we love bikes so much and we love riding bikes so much, uh, that that's probably Our ace in the hole that trumps analytics that, that helps guide us towards doing and creating things that other people do that we don't need. We don't need Mm -hmm. an algorithm to tell us what works because we all traffic in passion. Mm -hmm. We traffic in a passion sport. Um, and I think that that's why I think your YouTube channel will be destined to be successful is because I've just seen you riding bikes hard and loving it for as long as I've known you. And that is the reason that people will come to you is because you're not sitting at a desk only republishing press releases. You're out racing like all the time and not just racing a little bit, like racing at a high level competitively, even if you're not a professional, you're still way up there with professionals. And I think that that's that's kind of your trump card on a YouTube channel and creating content. And that's what people will clue into with what you're doing is, God, Ben, Ben loves bikes too. And he, he rides them hard. He, he can review with credibility because he's so good on a bike. Um, I think that that will be the part that will set that channel apart. That's my gut. Um, and that's why I'm so excited that you went out on your own and you're taking it by the reins, um, and
1: kind of, you know, being your own master in that regard. Well, thank you very much for the, for the kind words. I appreciate that. Um, and and uh, yeah, to reciprocate, yeah, it's clear in seeing how you guys engage that it's an authentic, genuine thing, and there's pride there, but there's also humility, and it doesn't come across as like a giant corporate speak thing. It's the people who love what they do talking to other people who love riding bikes. So, yeah, in some ways it's kind of simple that way. Yeah, with the YouTube thing, I've I've been grateful to have the – you know, guidance and mentorship of a lot of folks in particular, this guy, David Arthur, who started his own thing a couple of years ago. So I've just been following his wheel <laughs> basically.
2: Um, well, so what, uh, what, what, you know, do you set goals when you, when you start from scratch, like t- goals and timelines, or do you want to be at a certain place within a certain amount of time? Or do you want to create at a certain production? Like, what is it when you go in, do you just start, recording and let the ships fall where they are where do you want to go with the channel
1: short and medium term well i want the thing to stick i want it i want it to be my full-time job at some point right that's long-term like swinging for the fences that's where i want to go for sure and um yeah so macro micro goals macro goal make this my full-time job make this sucker sustainable uh that'll probably take some while micro goals two videos a week just get my repetitions in and that's one thing David Arthur has been helpful with who started just ride bikes a few years ago He's like I'm not gonna micromanage you you just need to get your repetitions in like if you want to get better at riding bikes just you know Eddie Merck's style go ride more <laughs> uh, you know ironically my skill set in descending orders working with words, working with photos, working with video I've been you know in front of a camera for many years and I'm comfortable with that but as far as editing the video, cat 5. So he's like, well, that's the nice thing about having a small audience is that there's not a big audience there as you learn. So just get your reps in. So two two videos.
2: Will it be all video? Uh, will it live all on YouTube all the time? Or will you, you know, create some words on the side so you can keep that muscle going and do embeds on a site?
1: Yeah, probably at some point I should get a website going. Uh, the reason why I went with my lowest skill is like that's the place where someone else can sell ads and hopefully give me enough money to <laughs> make it sustainable. Um, uh, so yeah, a website at some point, but for now I'm just putting all my eggs in the, in the video basket. Yeah. And I'm hoping that, uh, 20 plus years of experience doing cycling, storytelling will come back around and in, in some purpose.
2: Is the channel mostly review based? Are you reviewing bikes, events, things? Uh, like, what's the focus?
1: Sure. Yeah, three, three buckets of things. There's bike and gear reviews, often done inside events. You know, like yesterday, I was at, uh, or two days ago, I was at uh, Focal Fondo in Fort Collins, testing an Envy road bike with you know, different wheels and tires. Uh, so just try to contextualize the reviews instead of just like, here's a thing, in my cubicle it's like well here's a thing that's intended to do this stuff and like uh, you know in part self-serving i love doing events (laughs) like we all love riding bikes in beautiful places right but that also like contextualizes the the thing so that's that's the the main thrust of the the gear reviews the second bucket is ride guides like hey here's a beautiful ride here's old fall river road in in Rocky Mountain national park here's where you start park here so you can just ride in and pay 15 bucks instead of having to pay 40 dollars for a car and get Good reservations just like just super utilitarian type of thing for for ride guides largely colorado based and then the third bucket is just features of you know companies products people are things that i find interesting and those those may be dogs in terms of traffic uh, but those are also things that uh, i find interesting like my friend pat warner set a master's hour world record as for first person over 50 to ride 50 kilometers an hour didn't do a lot of traffic but i thought that was super neat so i wanted to talk to him about it so did that those those three things are the ride with ben delaney all right we're going on that ride we, we <laughs> subscribed i appreciate you and thanks very much for having me on your show it's been been fun chatting with you and, and an honor to be here with you guys
2: thanks for the the, the micro capsule education this was our mini master class <laughs> looking at some credits yeah uh yeah we'll get out on a ride uh i know that we're all kind of looking at the
1: calendar wondering when we can go on a big crazy uh rodeo ride so uh
3: calendar and the weather report
1: yeah. and make a video on this i mean selfishly like when that the uh, thread started up that was what i was thinking like a i want to do it, a big rodeo ride because i'm jealous of these these rides that you guys do uh, honestly it's all about the forecast
3: Thursday, let's go,
2: yeah, as soon as we won't <laughs> be killed by lightning, that's the day.
3: I know we almost got killed by lightning last year. yeah, we didn't we should have done a whole thing about that um, yeah. but
0: cool, Ben, it has been a pleasure getting to talk to you, learn a lot about the media industry, uh, as Steven said, I think that was a crash course. I think I'm the the least qualified in the media here, so I definitely immensely appreciated it and understanding the finances and how it all how it all works, and then also. The ride with ben delaney uh, i'm super excited to kind of hop in the, the slipstream and watch it grow and hopefully we can get on on a ride together so the forecast this week looks a little glum logan sorry that's when you decided to pop through town but i'm sure we'll all get on a bike together again soon so thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll hopefully keep the keep the rhythm going here we're finding the passion ourselves Rodeo
3: podcast. Rodeo, 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 Rodeo. Podcast. Rodeo Labs podcast is filmed in front of a live studio.